So God then pauses and he begins to transition now from now talking about all those things that communicate his character to now how does one gain access to the tabernacle. And yes, technically the gate is gaining access, and yes, the altar is gaining access, but still technically they're barriers because there's something that you had to overcome in order to get in. And so that brings us to chapter 28. So we chapter 28, verse 1, we come to the clothing of the priests. Now, the high priest is described first. And if you know something about the high priest, the first thing you realize is he looks a lot like the veil. And that's intentional. Because it is these clothes that he wears on the Day of Atonement in order to allow him to pass through the veil. So it becomes like the key to unlocking the veil, so to speak. And so what this does is when we get to Leviticus, he has to make a lot of sacrifices just to make himself clean and pure and holy enough to even wear this thing so that he can actually go into the Ark of the, or the Holy of Holies. So he has the purple and the blue and all that kind of stuff. And then he has this thing called the ephod. The ephod, um, E-P-H-O-D, yes, is a vest that he wears over his robe. So he would wear a white robe, which would communicate righteousness, then wear this blue and purple gold red robe over top of it, which represented him as the high priest. And then he wear an ephod that looks exactly like the blue and the purple and all that kind of stuff. And that was his vest that represented his priestly duties. And it was all tied together with a gold sash, which represents glory, the glory of God. Which is very interesting because when you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus appears to John and he's wearing a golden sash around his waist, which would mark him as a priest. And what is he going to do? He's going to take John through the sky into heaven, which is the heavenly tabernacle. And he's able to do that because he is John's high priest. And so that's intentional symbology there. And so the gold sash represents that. Then he would wear, this ephod had two gemstones on his shoulders. They're like a black onyx. And they were two gemstones. And six names would be carved into one side. And six other names would be carved into the other of the 12 tribes. And what's interesting is Leah's sons from the book of Genesis is carved into one side and Rachel and Zilpha and Bilhad's sons are carved into the other side. So Rachel and the maidservants are put on one and Leah is put in the other. And the one that is absent, because there's actually 13 tribes if you listen to the book of Genesis, um, the one that's not there is Levi because Levi is him. Okay, And so what he does is he has this gemstones there. Then he has this breastplate that kind of looks like Darth Vader's like um, chest place, and it's like this giant bling bling. And it doesn't go around the neck. It actually hooks to the gemstones. And the, there's 12 stones on here, and the 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. God assigned a different gemstone to each tribe, which is interesting because those gemstones show up as the foundations to the tabernacle that comes down in the book of Revelation as well. And so these gemstones, now what does this all communicate? It communicates that he has dedicated himself to an extra level of holiness and righteousness, which means he's made sacrifices to abstain from certain things that other Jews would participate in. Things that he says, I'm not going to live that way 
and I'm not going to eat or drink or whatever that way because I am making myself holy and righteous for Israel. And so what he's doing is he goes in bearing the sins of Israel. He's bearing the sins and the weight of Israel's sins on his shoulders. But at the same time, what's connected to the weight and the sins of the people is the breastplate, which is a very beautiful multicolored thing, which means he's wearing Israel on his heart. So he bears Israel's sins on his heart or his shoulders, but he takes Israel with him on his heart. And in this way, all of Israel is going with him. Now that's important because this is exactly what we're told about Christ. That Christ is our high priest who bears our sins upon his shoulders, but he takes us with him into his death and resurrection, which allows him to take us into the Holy of Holies that is in the heavenly place. And so this is the symbol of him. He becomes Israel so to speak, with all this garb. He has a censer, which is a golden canister, and they would put frankincense in it, and he would light it up, and it would billow out smoke. I don't know if you've ever seen a Greek Orthodox, or it's really cool. Like One of the things I wanted for Christmas is a censer. Um, <laughs> when I went over to Israel, there's this Greek Orthodox guy with a censer, and it was so cool. Like all the smoke billing around. And I know that might be like sacrilegious for me to just think it's like really cool looking because <laughs> there's like really a holy significance to it, but I just thought it was cool. But um, it was a censer and the smoke billows out and that represents cleansing. So he would have to cleanse his path because he's a sinner. So he cleansed the path. So it would become like a red carpet, so to speak, that he would walk on and he would go into the Holy of Holies. And then on his turban, he had this white turban with a gold band around it, and it said, Holy unto Yahweh, on it. And all this was supposed to represent the fact that he was an extra level of holiness, taking all of Israel with him into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel, in the same way that Christ fulfills us as the high priest. The difference is, he's going to die, and be replaced by another one and another one and another one. But Christ lives forever, constantly making intercession on our behalf. Now, a normal priest would just wear white. So he had a white robe, he would have a white ephod, and he might have some gold in that ephod, but that was about it. And most days of the week, he would just be wearing white as well. And so these are the priestly garments. Now, the other thing that he had... He has two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. They're two stones that he tucks in this breastplate. And whenever Israel has a question of God, he's to take these two stones and pray and cast them, and God speaks through the stones. Now that seems very witchcraft pagan-like to us. Okay, We don't know exactly what these stones are. We don't know exactly what was carved on it. Most people believe that one said yes on both sides and the other one said no or whatever. So if two no's came up, it was definitely no. If two yeses came up, it was definitely yes. If a no and a yes came up, it would be maybe or halt or wait. We don't know. We have no idea. This is total like reaching the air speculation based on what we know from other cultures and how they did these things. And I know this sounds really pagan and this bothers a lot of people, but you have to remember that prayer technically is Pagans did it. Animal sacrifice, pagans did it. Pagans had a tabernacle. What makes it pagan mostly is where you're going, the source. 
Now, this doesn't mean that you have permission to turn your quarter, heads and tails, into an urim and a thummim, because it's all I got, because God hasn't ordained that. So there's two big differences why this is not exactly pagan. One, God said, do it. And he forbid all those other pagan practices. Why does he allow one and not the others? I have no idea. I'm not God. Maybe that's an important question for you to ask one day. Maybe you'll get an answer. I don't know. So that's one thing. The other thing is that the promises that he will speak through these two things, and only if the high priest who has been ordained by God casts them. So the source behind it is not some random spirit that God knows only who it is talking to you, but is God himself. And so there's a very specific way you're to do it, a very specific person who's to do it, and a very specific reason why you would ask that question. And God promises to speak through that. It's often called casting lots as well. So those are the two big differences of why this is not witchcraft, this is not paganism, and it's also why it's very important for you to understand that you're not allowed to take anything today, any kind of modern equivalent, a crystal ball, a crystal, uh, an eight ball, okay, quarters or anything, and say, well, this is okay because he, because he didn't ordain those things today. And here's the other thing, too. The reason why he has that and we don't is because they also don't have the Holy Spirit, and we do. And to actually go to a quarter instead of prayer would be an insult relationally to the intimacy of the Holy Spirit in you. That would be like me sitting next to my wife on date night and communicating to her through texting. Why would I go to her through texting, which is very limited, when I can just turn and just face her and talk to her face to face? And so to use anything today is a relational intimacy insult to the Holy Spirit that's actually dwelling in you. So there is no reason to go to those things, even though you might feel like flipping the quarter is a lot faster than waiting on the Holy Spirit. But Adam and Eve thought that getting the fruit from the tree was a lot faster than waiting on God for wisdom too. And look how that turned out. Okay? Just discourage you from that. So that is the priestly garments. Yes? Is it just a myth, because I didn't see it on there, that they would go in with a rope around there? Oh, yes. Good question. I thought about that earlier and then sometimes I forget. It's not a myth. Now, basically what happens, they knew that the priest could screw up at any moment. And God, I mean, this isn't like, this isn't like the Jews were like, oh, we make up something about God. Like, God made it very clear. Like, if you go through the courtyard without the right animal sacrifice, God's going to kill you. If you touch the mountain Sinai, God's going to kill you. If you touch the ark, God's going to kill you. So it kind of makes it pretty obvious that if you go into the Holy of Holies and do it the wrong way, you're going to die. In fact, when we get to chapter 10 of Leviticus, Aaron's two sons are going to arrogantly think that they can sacrifice the, or burn, light the incense with their own method. And God kills them. So it's not uncommon. It's, it's a very, very logical, 100% probably accurate, that if he goes in an arrogant, non-holy kind of a way and does his own thing in the Holy of Holies, God's going to kill him. The problem is nobody's allowed in there except for the high priest. And the only other time they're going to be allowed in there is the next year. You don't want a rotting corpse. Now, granted, before the next year comes up, they're probably going to pack up the tabernacle. When the pillar of fire leaves, is no longer holy. But still, 
Who wants their relatives sitting there for a couple months in a hot desert wilderness culture and his dead body, according to the book of Leviticus, to become a defilement to the Holy of Holies? And so, yes, the Jews began to actually tie a rope to his ankle and bells. So the bells stopped ringing, then they would yank him out. Now, I'm sure they probably gave him a couple yanks and he could yank back because it's not like he has to do this the entire time. He stops ringing and all of a sudden, whoo, he's being pulled out. Okay, there's probably some kind of logical system. So, yes, they really did do that. However, there is no evidence anywhere that a high priest was ever struck down in the Holy of Holies and had to be pulled out. So, yes, they did that. But there's no evidence that they did it based on experience, like, oh, crap, we didn't think about that, or that he, they actually had to pull bodies out or anything like that. So there's no evidence to them actually having to do it, but they did do the rope and all that kind of stuff. But that was not prescribed by God in the Bible. That was a thing that the Jews began to do. And I'm not saying that that's wrong and that they should have never done it. I don't know. I'm just saying that that's not in the Bible anywhere. That's, that comes later. We only know that from Jewish writers outside of the Bible um, during the time of Christ who wrote about that practice. So when did they start doing that practice? We have no idea. So did that come from Moses? Did it come from somebody later? We have no idea. Chapter 29 is the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And so basically it goes in great detail of them putting these garments on, and making sacrifices, and all that kind of stuff. And basically the main point here is, and we're not going to go through this in detail because I'm going to focus that on Leviticus, but basically chapter 29, and notice how long this chapter is, and the main thing I want to say to you is this. God is going to go through great detail how each article of clothing is to be put on him and exactly what animal sacrifice is to be made for his sins and then the sins to purify, like he has to sacrifice for his own sins, then he has to make sacrifices to purify him, and then he has to make sacrifices as he goes into the temple, and then there has to be sacrifices and washings for each item of his clothing and the censer and all this kind of stuff, and put on him, and blood is rubbed on his earlobes, um, which probably represents hearing God, and on his thumbs, which means the work of God's, and his big toes, the walking in the path of God. And all these things, and it goes in great detail. And then he has to be anointed with the oil that's a specific way. And remember, all this is communicating, like, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of detail. You're a really evil, sinful person that has to go through this. And we're talking about hours upon hours. If you think getting ready for your wedding was a long time, this is nothing. I mean, at least you don't have to sacrifice animals to put on your wedding dress and your suit. Okay, You don't have to have blood rubbed on you and right oil and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about lots of money and animals, because for the priest it has to be bulls, and that is the most expensive animal out there. And we're talking about lots of hours, lots of purification, all this kind of stuff, just so this guy can spend a couple of minutes in the Holy of Holies. And the point is, if this is what he has to go through just for a couple of minutes, imagine what it would take for you to step into the presence of God Almighty and dwell there without dying. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all going to go through. And that's what the book of Leviticus is going to be foreshadowing, the need for a better and greater sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. So there is a rhyme and a reason for why God goes through so much effort, because he's trying to communicate how far away that we are from God, truly. 